Would you take God's Word this morning, and I invite you to open to an Old Testament passage this morning, open to 2 Kings chapter 11. We have been going through the Gospel of Mark. I want to set that aside just for a moment uh, for this Sunday, and I want you to look in 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, and I want to read the first three verses of this chapter with you. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain, and they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And he was with her, hid in the house of the Lord six years, and Athaliah did reign over the land. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, how it instructs us. And I pray that, Lord, you will help us to be attentive and that in this story we could see our Lord Jesus Christ and instruct us more about him today. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Some of you may have heard or read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis. It's a story really about Christmas. It's a story about four children who find their way into this fairy tale land and all the things that they experience in this land called Narnia. And it may sound a little strange to us, but in this fantasy from C.S. Lewis, the way the children enter into this land of Narnia is through an old English wardrobe, which is kind of a secret passageway, where they go into this alternative world. And when they go into this world, they find a world that is snow-blanketed, this land called Narnia, where the animals talk. And this land is ruled by a wicked witch. And according to the story, this wicked witch is the one who always causes the land. It's always winter there, and it's never Christmas. In fact, there's one scene in the book where Lucy, one of the, uh, the children meets up with a talking animal, a little fawn, and she asks, why is it always cold and, and dark? And the, the response is, well, because of the wicked witch, because, because of her, her control over the land, it's always winter and it's never Christmas. Now, what if there were no Christmas? What would this world be like? Well, this story here in Second Kings is about a wicked woman, and if she had her way, it would always be winter. It would never be Christmas. Uh, Her desire was to cancel Christmas. By the way, we live in a cancel culture today where people want to cancel everything. But I want to tell you, you really can't cancel Christmas. And this story is really going to teach us that one lesson. But did you know that there was a time in the history of God's salvation plan where the promise of Christmas was in serious jeopardy? You know, on the surface, it looked like that God's promise was not going to come to pass, that his promise of a Messiah would fail. But I want to tell you, friend, God always keeps his promises. This is one of the major themes of First and Second Kings. If you've been with us on Wednesday night, we've been studying First and Second Kings. We're kind of jumping ahead here to Second Kings because of this story. But one of the great themes of this book, and really in the Hebrew, First and Second Kings is just one book. But the great theme, one of the great themes is the faithfulness of God's word. God always keeps his word, even when it looks like on the surface that he's not. You can rest assured 
that he always does. But another theme of the book of First and Second Kings is how the kings point to Jesus Christ. All of the kings that are recorded in this Old Testament narrative, they all point to Jesus either by example or by counterexample, either by the good things that they do, they remind us of Jesus, or the bad things that they do remind us that this is not what Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect king. And this story is no exception, exception to that. This is the story of a king named Joash, and uh, we want to see the parallels in the life of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing. I want you to see six parts to this story here this morning. Number one, the king aided. And the first thing that we see is that protection is needed for a baby that is born to be king, king of the Jews. Uh, we see this in verse number one. Again, and when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. Now, every great drama has a villain, and the villain of this story is this woman by the name of Athaliah. She is the mother of the king Ahaziah, one of the kings of Judah. She was the daughter of Jezebel. Does that name Jezebel sound familiar? One of the most wicked women in all of recorded Old Testament history. And like mother, like daughter. Her daughter Athaliah was every bit as wicked as her mother, if not more so. And when she heard that her son, the king, Ahaziah, had died, she vowed to be the queen of Judah, the first and only queen. But the only way that that could happen is if all of the dynasty of David, the sons of David, had to be exterminated. And this would be her grandchildren. Imagine that. In order for her to be the queen, she would have to exterminate all of her grandsons. And this is exactly what she did, according to verse number 1. It says that when she saw that her son was dead, she arose and she destroyed all the seed royal. What kind of wicked woman is this that would kill your own grandchildren just for power? There's no character in history that stands out that is more hideous than this woman, this Athaliah. And the Bible says in verse number 1, and she destroyed all the seed royal. Now remember, God had promised David that from his dynasty, there would be a king who would reign on the throne of David forever. This would be the Messiah. You remember, God promised David an everlasting kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David said, you know, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. The ark was in a tent, and it was the desire of David to build a temple. And God says, no, that's not my plan. Instead, David, I will build you a house. You want to build me a house? And the Hebrew word for house there is temple. God says, David, instead, I'm going to build you a house. And the Hebrew word for house there is a dynasty. You want to build me a temple, but I promise I'm going to build you a dynasty. And God made a promise to David that from his seed, there would be a king who would come, who would reign forever. And this would be the Messiah. And so therefore, what would God have to do in order for that to happen? He would have to preserve the dynasty of David. There's an expression that we see in First and Second Kings called a lamp for David. And what that means is simply this, that no matter how bad things got, God would always keep the dynasty of David alive. There would always be a lamp lit for David. Even when Solomon disobeyed the Lord and God ripped the kingdom from him, God allowed a tribe to stay in Judah. Why? Because the Bible says 
my, that my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. God said that there would always be a lamp lit for David. Listen to Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon the throne. God made this promise. Nothing will happen to the dynasty of David. I will preserve it because from that dynasty will come the Messiah. You might remember one story in the Old Testament of a king by the name of Ahaz, who was a son of David, and he was very afraid because two wicked kings had promised to exterminate him and the dynasty of David. And God sent to this king a prophet by the name of Isaiah, and he assured the king that the evil intention of those wicked kings would not come to pass, and he gave him a sign. Listen to the sign, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That would be the ultimate sign that God would give, that God would preserve David, his dynasty, and would bring the Messiah. But look in verse number one, because it seems like in that first verse that God has not kept his promise. Because it says, and she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. Well, if that's true, that means there would be no son of David. That means there would be no Messiah. There would be no kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. There would be no Christmas, in which case we would all live miserably ever after. And that would be the end of the story. But here's the thing. And the writer of the Kings is very careful to point out here that God's royal promise is not broken. Because while she thought that she killed all of the descendants of David, guess what, beloved? She missed one. Notice what the Bible says in verse number two. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain, and they hid him, even him and his nurse in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And we are introduced here in verse number two to a hero in the Old Testament. You probably have never heard her name, Jehoshaphat, which is a combination of two words, uh, Jehovah and Shiva or Sheba, which simply means swears, Jehovah swears, or we could say it like this, Jehovah promises. It's no accident that her name, Jehovah promises, is uh, given, this name is given to her because she's the one that God will use to preserve his promise. She's, one of, again, one of the great heroes of the Bible, and she is not known very much, but because of her, we celebrate Christmas because what she did was she took the son of the king, Ahaziah, and she grabbed him out of the nursery, and she hid him, the Bible says, And when she did that, what she did was she was preserving the promise of God, whether she knew it or not. God used her to save the dynasty of David. So there was a point in salvation history where the plan of redemption, the hope of Christmas hung by just one little child, one single thread. Friend, heaven and earth may pass away, but God's word will not pass away. God's promises will always come to pass. God said, my covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. So she steals away little Joash, and she notice where she hides him in verse number two where it says in the bedchamber. Where is that? 
All around the temple, there were storage rooms. You know, temples were like Baptist churches. They needed a lot of storage for things. And they had these rooms all around the temple where they would store things. And beds were stored in here. Now, there are some scholars that say that it was a bedroom, kind of like a dorm room, but that's not what it was. It was a storage room where they would store beds, and they would pull those beds out whenever they needed them for the priests that were working there in the temple over time. You can imagine they probably used them for things like that. But there this child was hid away. And the Bible says for six years he was hidden. Look in verse 3. And he was with her hid in the house of the Lord six years. And Athaliah did reign over the land. Here was this little son of David hidden away in the house of the Lord for six years. That's the first part. The king aided. But then write down number two, the king announced because there came a point in time after six years being raised in secret with his royal identity unrecognized, it was time for him to be brought out. Now, there was one man, we're introduced to another character in verse number four, a priest by the name of Jehoiada, who was a faithful servant of the Lord, who was loyal to God and his promises. He was loyal to the dynasty of David. And he realized that it was time now to reveal this young king, And the Bible in the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 23 says, and Jehoiada strengthened himself. What he was about to do is a courageous event. He was about to restore the rightful king to his throne. Look at verse number four. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard, and he brought them to him in the house of the Lord, and he made a covenant with them and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. What did Jehoiada do? He gathered around him officers who were in charge of the temple guard. He held a secret council with these men. He made them swear to secrecy. And then he revealed to them Joash, who was the son of David, the rightful king. Now, you can imagine the joy that these men must have felt. They thought that the king, the dynasty of David was gone. They probably thought that God's promises would not come to pass. But here he reveals to these men, this little seven-year-old boy, he shows them that the lamp had not been snuffed out. And then I want you to see the third thing. The king not only aided and announced, he was revealed to this small group, but then the king anointed. Because once Joash had been announced and revealed to these loyal soldiers, Jehoiada gave them a plan to anoint the king. Notice verse number five. And he commanded them saying, this is the thing that ye shall do. A third part of you that enter in on the Sabbath shall even be keepers of the watch of the king's house. And a third part be at the gate of Sur. And a third part at the gate behind the guard. So shall ye keep the watch of the house that it be not broken down. And two parts of all you that go forth on the Sabbath, even they shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord about the king. And ye shall compass the king round about every man with his weapons in his hand. And he that cometh within the ranges, let him be slain. And be ye with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. And so, once, and so here's the plan. It's a very simple plan. Jehoiada chose the Sabbath day to do this. Why was that? Because on the Sabbath day, there was what was called the changing of the guards. One-third of the guards would be coming off duty. A third of the guard would be going on duty. This would be an ideal time to have two companies of guards there to help protect the king. 
And at the appropriate signal, these guards were to surround the king. And if anyone got close to the boy king, they were told to threaten them with death or even put them to death if they attempted to interfere or do anything. And this would be the time when Joash would be revealed. And so the, the procedure went just as commanded. Look in verse 9. And the captains over the hundreds did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they took every man his, his men that were coming on the Sabbath with them that they should go out on the Sabbath, and they came to Jehoiada the priest. And so all of these men, these two companies, they come to Jehoiada the priest, and you know what happens? He's going to issue them weapons to use to protect the king. Now, what's very interesting is the weapons that he uses. Look at verse number 10. And to the captains over hundreds did the priest give King David spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. This is very interesting to me. When the guards come to the priest to get their weapons that they could use to protect the young boy king, what do the priests give them? They issue them the weapons of King David. Now, these weapons had to be 200 years old. These were weapons that David took in battle from uh, the spoils of war that would be hung on the walls of the temple. After Solomon built the temple, he hung them on the walls as trophies. These would be David's own weapons and the ones that he took in battle. They were just really symbols of victories that God had won for David. So there's a sense that even David is there in this plan, helping to protect his own son. But these would be symbols of David's authority, of restoring the rightful king to his rightful throne. Now think about it. David's past victories provided weapons for his future son's protection. You know what I think when I think about that? Parents, many of the battles we win for Christ today will bless our families for future generations. Another thought I think about this is ancient weapons still work. You know, there's a lot of people out there looking for new weapons to do the Lord's work. But you know what? The ancient weapons still work. The weapons of prayer and faith and the word of God, they still work. Now, once the temple was secure, Joash was anointed. Look in verse 12. And he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands, and they said, God save the king. They placed in his hands what is called the testimony. What is that? That's simply the law of God. Did you know in the Old Testament, every king was to have his own copy of the law, the word of God? Uh, this is according to Deuteronomy seventeen eighteen. And by the way, this is the basis for the British custom of presenting to a monarch at the coronation a copy of the word of God. So kind of get the picture in your mind. Here's this seven-year-old prince. He's standing at the appointed place in the temple right before the pillars. Uh, that's where the king is inaugurated. He's surrounded by guards, and they're holding the weapons of his father, King David. He has a copy of the word of God in his hand. He now has a crown on his head. He's probably wearing a priestly robe that was, he would wear while he helped out working in the temple there with the priests. So there's a sense in which he represents the Lord Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And he's greeted with wild applause. They blow the trumpets and everyone says, God save the king. Again, he's a picture of Christ. You know, one day we're going to hear a trumpet sound and Jesus will be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. So here he's anointed. 
But then I want you to see the fourth thing, the king avenged. Look down in verse 13. Because what happens was the people were making so much noise that the palace that was not far away could hear the ruckus and the evil queen Athaliah wanted to know what was going on. And so immediately she went up to the temple to see what all the noise was about. And look at verse 13. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord. And when she looked and behold, the king stood by a pillar as the matter was. And the princes and the trumpeters by the king and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets. And Athaliah rent her clothes and cried, treason, treason. Now, when she entered into the courtyard and she sees this, she is just shocked. And she cries out, treason. Now, of course, the only one who committed treason was her. She's the guilty one. The rightful king was being put on his rightful throne. But it was convenient for Jehoiada that she was there because she needed to be arrested anyway. And so he has the men take her out. And in verse 15, But Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the host, and said unto them, Have her forth without the ranges, and him that followeth with her with kill with the sword. For the priest had said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. And they laid hands on her, and she went by the way by the which the horses came into the king's house, and there, was, there she was slain. There they take her out of the temple. They don't want to kill her in the, the, the compound of the temple. That was too sacred a place for something like that to happen. So they take her out by the horse's gate. And the Bible says she is put to death there. She is slain with the sword. So the king is avenged. But notice the next part of the story. The king avowed. Once the king was avenged by the death of this wicked king, he was presented with a covenant. Look at verse 17. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. So really, this was kind of a three-way covenant. It was a covenant between God and between the people and between the king. God's part was he would establish the king's throne forever. And he would bless his people as he promised. The people's part was they would serve the Lord. They would remain loyal to the anointed king. And what was the king's part? He promised to follow the Lord with all his heart and to live according to the word of God, according to the law of God. This covenant required total commitment to God and God alone. God would not tolerate idols God would not tolerate uh, sharing his affection with any other God. That's why we see the response. Look at verse number 18. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal and break it down. His altars and his images break. They in pieces thoroughly and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priests appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And so... We, this is why that response, once the covenant was renewed, all the false gods and idols had to be exterminated. The house of Baal had to be torn down. You see, when God rules through his rightful king, order is restored, worship is reformed. Everything that stands between the rightful worship of God must go. You know what God expects of us? Get, 
out of our life all of the idols, all the things that stand between us and God. We must put God on our throne. We must make a covenant to obey the Lord. You know what salvation is? Salvation is a covenant relationship between us and God. And once God saves us, we make a covenant to obey our King Jesus only. And then notice the next part of this story. We see the king aided, and he was announced. He was anointed, avenged, avowed. And here's the last part. The king adored. Because look at verse 19. Finally, Joash is taken in a royal procession from the temple to the palace. Verse 19, and he took the rulers over hundreds and the captains and the guard and all the people of the land, and they brought down the king from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate on the guard to the king's house, and he sat on the throne of the kings. And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was in quiet, and they slew Athaliah with a sword beside the king's house. Seven years old was Joash when he began to reign. So Jehoiada posts guards all along the way from the path from the house of the Lord, the temple, all the way to the king's palace. And finally, he is brought and enthroned, and the people rejoice. A son of David was seated on the throne of David once again. God kept his promise. Now, this whole story points to Christ. Now, remember, the, the history of Joash is the history of Jesus Christ. His kingship is prophesied in these Old Testament stories. And what we see here are some parallels between Joash and Jesus, the rightful king. Here's the first one. Jesus Christ is the king assisted. You remember when, it was, when Jesus was born? You remember in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men that came to give gifts to Jesus and to worship him. And you remember they had to come to Jerusalem and they met up with Herod. And you remember what Herod said? Oh, listen, when you find this king of the Jews, you let me know that I might worship him. Yeah, right. That's not what Herod wanted to do. You can almost hear the hiss in his words, the hiss of the serpent, because he wanted to kill the baby Jesus. And later, when the wise men were about to return, God came to them and warned them, don't go back to Herod, go another way. And when Herod saw that, you know what he did? He made a decree that all of the children, two year, all the male children, two years old and under, in Bethlehem be put to death. I was once in Israel and I visited the place called Herodium. Herodium is a huge mound and on the top of it was Herod's palace. It's still there in ruins. Herod had it built on like a man-made mountain because he said he wanted to be able from his palace to look out and see the city of Jerusalem, which was about four miles away. So you can kind of ascend Herodium and stand up there on that mound by the palace. And as you look out and look down, you know what you can see? You can see right below there is the little village of Bethlehem. You can see it standing there at the height of Herodium. And I often wondered standing there if Herod heard the cries of the mothers that night when he had those little two-year-old boys put to death. He was trying to exterminate the Messiah. See, Satan has always tried to hinder the coming of Jesus Christ, but he's always failed. The baby Jesus was assisted by uh, Mary and Joseph who took Jesus down to Egypt, and for a while, Jesus had to be hidden in a place 
before he was revealed. Jesus Christ is the king assisted. Jesus Christ is the king announced. Uh, Did you know later on, after many years of spending his life in a hidden little village called Nazareth, it was time for him to be revealed. And Jesus made his way to Judea where John the Baptist was baptizing. And you remember the announcement, the public announcement that John the Baptist gave, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And then after that, Jesus went out preaching the kingdom. And the more he taught and the more miracles he performed, the more the people understood that this man was more than a carpenter from Nazareth. He was the king that had come down from heaven until the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and declared himself to be the Messiah. And the people cried out, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the king announced. Jesus Christ is the king anointed. When was Jesus anointed? When John the Baptist was baptized. Remember, Jesus came to be baptized, and John the Baptist baptized him in the river, and the Bible says that when he came up, that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. This was Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Listen to Luke 14, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus was the anointed one. In fact, do you know the word Messiah actually means anointed one? The word Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. It's, again, a word that means the anointed one. What was Jesus anointed to do? He was anointed to be our Savior, anointed to be our Redeemer. Jesus Christ is the king assisted, announced, anointed. Jesus Christ is the king avenged. Did you know one day Jesus will return again? And this time when Jesus comes back, he will not be the savior, he will be the judge. We've been studying this in the gospel of Mark. When Jesus comes back again, he will come as the judge. And he will bring vengeance on all of those that obey not the gospel. You know, we treat the gospel like an invitation, and and it is. God invites all people to trust in his son, Jesus, but it's also a command. God is commanding people everywhere to repent. And for those who do not obey the call of the gospel, when Jesus comes back again, the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 1, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king avenged, and he will be avenged when he judges at his second coming. But also, Jesus Christ is the king of out. Did you know that Jesus made a covenant with God the Father? You know what the covenant was? God the Father promised his son that he would give him an eternal throne and a people that would praise him. But God the Son promised his father that he would obey the law perfectly with his obedience, and he would be willing to suffer whatever penalty we would incur when we broke the law of God. Uh, It was basically, it was the obedience of Christ to the covenant he made with the Father and his obedience in submitting to the suffering of the cross that brought us our salvation. You know, we say that a person is not saved by works, but the truth of the matter is we are saved by works. 
We're not saved by our works. We're saved by the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what we're saved by? We're saved by his obedience. Now, theologians, they divide the obedience of Christ into two categories. They, they say it like this. There was the active obedience of Christ and there was the passive obedience of Christ. What's the passive obedience of Christ? That is simply he would submit to the suffering of the cross. He would submit to the pain inflicted on him because of the curse of sin. The Bible says he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That was his passive obedience. But then there was also his active obedience. This is when Jesus fulfilled all the law of God on our behalf. He fulfilled all of the moral demands of the law. He lived a perfect and sinless life. This qualified him to be the Lamb of God. It qualifies him for the song that we'll sing one day, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain because of his righteousness. And so Jesus not only had to die for our sins, he had to live for our righteousness. Now think of it like this. This is the illustration I like to use. Let's just say that you were in debt millions of dollars. And sometimes I feel like that at Christmas time, don't you? Let's just say you were in debt millions of dollars and you had no way to pay back that debt. And he was a kind, rich man who took mercy on you. And he came and he said, you know what? I'm going to pay off all of your debt. And he pays all of it off. Now that brings you to zero. You're not in the red, but you're not in the black either. But let's just say that this rich man is extremely gracious. And he says, not only will I pay off all of your debt, but I'm also going to add to your account millions. And so now you'll be in the plus category. You'll have millions of dollars. And so he takes you from being millions of dollars in debt to being millions of dollars rich. You say, where can I find this rich man? Let me tell you who he was. His name was Jesus. And you know what? He did that for you spiritually speaking. Because all of us were in debt to sin. All of our sins had piled up. We had no way to pay back that debt. And with Jesus' death on the cross, his suffering and death on the cross paid our sin debt. But not only that, Jesus added to our account the riches of righteousness. All of the obedience of the law that was in the life of Jesus, all of that was credited to your account. It was credited to my account. That's what Jesus did for us. He wiped out our sin. And now, you know, beloved, I stand before you today, before God, in the eyes of God, I am righteous. But what God doesn't see, he doesn't see Jerry Harmon, he sees Jesus Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ applied to me. I'm a saint. I don't have to wait to die before people call me a saint. I'm Saint Jerry right now. And by the way, so are you. Because God has attributed to you all of the righteousness of Christ, the moment that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king of vowed, who vowed to obey all the law of God for you. And then finally, beloved, Jesus Christ is the king adored. Just as all the people in Joash day rejoiced over him when he was enthroned, even so we need to rejoice over our Savior, Jesus Christ who is our rightful king. And by the way, beloved, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what it's all about. That's why you can't cancel Christmas. You can't cancel Christ. You can't cancel out what he's done for you. 
Christmas is about recognizing your true king. It's about putting the rightful king, Jesus, in the rightful place. It's about crowning him in your life. Christmas is about recognizing your king. Christmas is about receiving your king. The people received Joash once they recognized him. Have you received Jesus, your king? Have you opened your heart to him? Have you invited him in? That is salvation. The Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. King, uh, Christmas is about rejoicing over your king when we celebrate Christ. And it's also about revealing your king to others. You see, that's what we must do. We have to reveal this rightful king to others. Many people don't know. There are people out there, and they actually think that Christmas is about gifts and reindeer and Santa Claus and all that other stuff. That's, that's, none of that is about Christmas. Christmas is about Christ. Christmas is about Jesus and what he, what he did for us. It is about revealing Christ the King to a world that's lost, and they don't realize that the lamp of David is lit and that their only hope is Jesus Christ. Vance Habner said, the gospel is not something we come to church to hear. It is something we go from church to tell. We tell others about this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while the wicked queen Athaliah tried to cancel Christmas, she wasn't able to do it because you can't stamp out the purposes of God. You can't cancel Jesus the king. What you have to do is you have to decide what you're going to do with him. Will you receive him? as he is? Will you rejoice over him? Will you submit to him in your life? Let's bow for prayer together today. The Bible says all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen. I know for many of you here, this Christmas season may be a little bit solemn and somber, and maybe a difficult year for many, but I would remind you about the hope that you have in Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. Remember that hope that you have and embrace it. Put all of your hope in him. No matter how difficult things might seem for you now, there's hope because Jesus came to save us. He came to be our king. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, can I ask you right now where you are, would you be willing to reach out in faith? Say, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the rightful king. And today I want to enthrone you in my heart. I want to receive you as my Savior, as my Lord. Just pray that. Tell him that. Lord Jesus, save me today. I receive you as Savior and Lord. Father, thank you again for the hope that we have in Christ. I pray that these words from Scripture will build our faith. I pray that it will help us to see that, God, you always keep your word and that there's salvation in Christ when we put our faith in him. Help us to see the beauty of Christ. Help us to worship him as he ought to be worshipped as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.